Join with me this morning and um, open your Bibles to Psalm 145. I'm sorry, guys, I get talking pretty loud, so I will leave it there, and then y'all can adjust it from your end. Psalm 145. George Whitfield, that famous 18th century evangelist of the First Great Awakening, made a statement. And he said, Numberless marks does man bear in his soul that he has fallen and estranged from God. But nothing gives a greater proof thereof than that backwardness, which everyone finds with himself to the duty of praise and thanksgiving. I confess my own backwardness this morning. Praise to God is my and your highest duty. We are grumblers by nature. I know I am. I complain about the smallest of matters. We tend to major on the minors, don't we? We would say that God is worthy of praise. No believer would deny that reality. It's undeniable. God is to be praised. But yet, often our own concerns are so, are so central in our thinking that most of the time we never stop and just consider why he is worthy. And thus we fall woefully short what is due him. Not just praise, but as our text will show us today, great praise. Whitfield was right. We're backwards this morning. The psalm I've selected has a purpose. The psalmist's purpose, his reason for pinning this psalm, is to give you and me proof about God. Proof that compels our hearts and our minds and our bodies to praise God. To joyfully invoke our highest praise. Not just for duty's sake, but truly for your joy and for God's glory. In the mind of the psalmist, this idea is so essential that he has gone to great lengths to craft this song in a really, truly remarkable way. I use the word craft because that's what he's done. Now, most of y'all are familiar with the collection of the psalms. It's called the, the Telahim. It's, it means songs. And that's what the Hebrew Bible calls the collection of the psalms. But this specific psalm, Psalm 145, is the only psalm that has the word a song in it. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see it in the there at the beginning. It says a praise of David. It is a song of David. We know that David has written this psalm. And David will employ numerous literary devices to impress his words upon our minds. One of those is David uses a rhetorical device called an inclusio. And those are like bookends. And where he begins is where he ends. And everything in between there is the proof that David's going to give us for why God is worthy of great praise. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. And then he ends, my mouth shall praise, shall speak of the praise of the Lord and shall bless all flesh, shall bless his holy name forever and ever. This is also an acrostic psalm. It's an alphabet acrostic. And what that means is that David has carefully chosen every couplet, the first word in that couplet to begin 
with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, faith, Kimmel, Daleth. Verse 1, the first word will begin with the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. The second one, faith, and so forth and so on. He has crafted this so that when we look at it, and when his people looked at it, they will understand that God is worthy of all praise. The psalmist's vocabulary employs almost every aspect of verbal praise. Words such as extol, bless, praise, declare, meditate, speak, utter. All these words David would use to show the importance of us praising the Lord. And finally, Psalm 145 directly proceeds what is called in the Psalms as the great Hallel. Hallel is short for hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And Psalm 145 sits right before that. And those who organized the Psalms were purposeful in that. The great Hillel will, will, will conclude, implore everything that has breath to praise the Lord. David's goal is single-minded here. And that's to ensure that God receives the praise worthy of him. And I believe we're all in need this morning of something that will stimulate and exhilarate our thoughts of God, resulting in exuberant praise to him. So I challenge you to join with me this morning. Give your heart and your mind fully to what is written to us in this psalm. If you'll nod your head, I'll know you're with me. I see a lot of heads nodding. Good. Verse 1. I will extol you, my God, the King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. The language David has chosen reveals that he has observed some things that move his soul in the highest regard for God. He can't be silent. He is beside himself and he must respond by exalting God, lifting him up, making much of God. You'll also see that David acclaims that God is the king. In the Hebrew, there's a definite article there, which means he would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. This, this not only denotes that God has a kingdom, but that he is also the king over every kingdom, over every square inch of the planet. Psalm 24 states, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in. This means that our king, he has the prerogative to rule my life, to rule your lives. And incidentally, as we read in history, kings can be potentially devastating, can't they? First Samuel 8, we find God through the prophet Samuel warning Israel when they wanted a king like all the other nations. And Samuel told them that the king would take of his sons for the purpose of making his army, he would, make, he would make servants of their daughters. The king would take the best of the fields and the vineyards and he'd give it to his friends. They would essentially become the king's slaves. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, y'all know the story about David. He saw a woman, another man's wife, he coveted her and what did he do? He took her. And then what did he do? He had her husband killed. 1 Kings 21, King Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. And after discussing it with his wife, his wife organized the lie against Naboth and he was killed and Ahab got the kingdom. Kings, kings could be potentially devastating. 
But as we're going to see this morning, God is a good king. There's none other like him. The psalmist is not suggesting that one day he will extol God. No, the verb form expresses that David has a heart of extended praise to God now and ongoing. And that is exactly what we read in the next verse. Look at verse 2. The psalmist writes, In every day, in every day, I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever. In both verses, the psalmist professes, he will praise and bless your name. We saw that in a song up here about that we will praise the name of the Lord. He doesn't say that he will bless God. Yes, the song of praise is directed towards God, but he's not satisfied with the generic description of the king of the, of the cosmos. No Jew would have been, by the way. When you introduce yourself to another person, whether it's your or another person to another person, whether you introduce Jill or your children, you use a name. You use their name. God has a name. The God of the Bible is the God who names himself. This means that by nature, he is personal. He can never be equated with the utterly transcendent God of deism, which thinks deists would say that God started the world, but he's not interested in us. He just sits off in his lofty perch and he doesn't care about us. That's deist view. Nor is he like the imminent God of pantheism where he's everywhere. He's everything. You're God. That chair is God. This tree or this plant is God. False gods are identified by what they do. But the true and living God is identified by who he is. By who he is. Loyalty to the name of God is at the heart of biblical faith for the Jews before Christ and to every subsequent believer beginning in Christ. And this is seen from hundreds of references to the name of God. I'll just mention a few. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus 27. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Our father in heaven. Y'all know this one. Jesus said, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There are many names for God revealed in the Bible. El Shaddai, El Roy. El Shaddai means the God, the Almighty, or better translated, God, the All-Sufficient. El Roy is the one who sees me. Hagar quoted that in Genesis. El Alam, the everlasting God. But God's personal, his proper name is different than all other name for God in the Bible. And so revered was this name to the Jews that following the Babylonian captivity, they would not even pronounce it orally. But they simply wrote four Hebrew consonants that we understand to be transliterated Y-H-W-H. In fact, whenever the rabbis would come across this sacred name in their text, in their public reading, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They substituted a different word, Adonai, because they didn't... The name 
of the Lord was so hallowed in their, in their minds that they didn't want to profane it through their use of it. We would, the transliteration in English, we call that Yahweh. It occurs over 6,000 times. And it comes from the Hebrew word to be. God is. This is what God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Exodus 3, 14. It could be understood as I am there wherever it may be. I am really there. Y'all get a sense of what God is saying about his name and the personal nature of it. It describes his proximity wherever you are, he is. And it is this name, the name of the true and living and eternal God that the psalmist and we today are to praise and bless. And that praise, by the way, as we saw with David, is never to be ending. Look at the language used in every day. I will bless you forever and ever. Great is the Lord. Verse three. And to be greatly praised and his greatness is unsearchable. God's greatness is unsearchable. Other words for that would be unfathomable, innumerable, unknowable. This Hebrew word that we translate unsearchable or unfathomable in your Bibles is used 13 times in the Old Testament. And the only time it's used is to emphasize the impossible. Isaiah 40, verse 28, he writes, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. Job writes, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He is the maker. He's talking about the constellation of the stars. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the earth. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. It is impossible for us to comprehend God's understanding. His greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's unknowable in its true form. The things he does are beyond our ability to understand. We could spend a lifetime examining God and never plumb the depths of what, why, and how he does what he does. Not only are they un unfathomably magnificent, the quantity of his works are innumerable. Job would write again, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unfathomable. The Lord's unsearchable, unknowable, innumerable, unfathomable. We do not know him in this way, in the way that he really is. He has not revealed all about himself to us. Sometimes we forget in our assumptions and our theologies that we cannot truly know God the way he is in his totality. And that's the point of Psalm 145.3.
Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unfathomable. And while that's the point of Psalm 145, and I don't want to discourage you today thinking, well, then why even try? The Lord has allowed us to know some things about him. He has provided the means through his word. Follow with me as we read verses four to seven. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter, and this means to literally bubble over, to gush forth the memory of your great goodness, and shall joyfully sing of your righteousness. We find that God's majesty and splendor, referred to here in uh, verse 5, is somehow inseparably joined to his wondrous works in verse 5, his awesome acts in verse 6, and his great goodness in verse 7. Now, if we were to stop reading right here, we'd be left to speculate about what these works and acts are. What are those? We might conclude, and rightly so, that the psalmist is thinking and he's meditating about the creation. I don't know about y'all, Glenn and I saw a beautiful sunset yesterday. And it lifts our hearts up and praise to God. The psalmist in Psalm 19 writes, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies show his handiwork. So is the psalmist thinking about creation when he talks about his works and his, his acts? Did you know that this is not what the psalmist is dwelling on here? In fact, that couldn't even be the farthest thing from his mind right here. Verses 8 through 21 highlight just what it is that has the psalmist in such exuberant praise to God. I want you to hold your place in your Bible there. And I want you to flip back to Psalm 144, verse 3. I love hearing the word, uh, the pages turn. What is it that has the psalmist in such extravagant praise to God day after day after day, forever and ever? Well, there it is, 144.3. O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you think of him? The New English translation puts it like this. O Lord, of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is mankind that you should be concerned about them. What are those works and those acts? What results in David's praise to God? It's that God is mindful of us. He's not thinking about the creation. I remember one time, Belinda and I, it's the first time we ever came to California. This is long before I came to seminary. We went way up north, started in uh, Vacaville, and we drove up to Garbersville, which is this place called Avenue of the Giants. I don't know if you've ever been there. Trees as big as this room. And it, they were absolutely and utterly magnificent. And I felt about that big. The sun is shining through the trees. It's low. I have the mist coming up. And it occurred to me, God has not provided a way to preserve those trees. That will all be burned up one day. You ever think about that when you look at the creation? One day, 
God's going to do a new creation, but he's provided a way to save you, to preserve you and me. God is personal. Let's read about that. Go back to Psalm 145. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another. What are those works? What are those acts? What is that great goodness David is talking about? Let's read verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all, and his tender mercies are upon all his works. The Lord is gracious to sinners. He's full of compassion. He is slow to anger, great in mercy. All things that we sang about today. The Lord is good to all. Consider Jesus' words in Luke 6.35. He says, but love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to ungrateful and evil people. The Lord's tender mercies are the controlling influence in all of his dealings with humanity. This word, tender mercies, it's in its plural form in the Hebrew, and it highlights not an act, but a disposition towards us. Yes, there's actions involved, but it it shows God's position that he takes towards you every day. It's a heart attitude, a feeling of love, a loving sensation. It's to be very fond of us. A deep and profound love of one towards another who truly is an inferior. And I don't say that in a negative way. You ladies who have ever held a baby and fed that child, either from your breast or a bottle, you understand that child is inferior to you. She, he depends on you. This is the feeling of love that the psalmist says God has towards us us his people just think about that this is his posture his heart attitude he has chosen to have this attitude towards us his sinful sometimes rebellious often ungrateful and unthankful people take a moment to pause and think about your own life your own heart can you recall the numerous ways that God has shown kindness to you. Just think on it for a moment. Do you praise God in every day for the deep, profound mercy and kindness he extends towards us, towards you? Or is your praise in the mood of the moment? I'm afraid sometimes that's where we are. It's hard to praise God when you don't feel good, when you have a headache. It's hard to praise God when your spouse has said something tacky or half-handed or thoughtless. It's hard to praise God when your children are, are twisting off, as a, me and Belinda call it. It's hard to praise God when, when you're sick. It's hard to praise God when, you're, when people do things against you. Is our praise in the mood of the moment? Look back at verse four. He writes, one generation shall praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. The nation of Israel erected monuments to God's greatness for a purpose. And it was to teach their children of God's power and his faithfulness. 
in Joshua 4, we have the, the event where Israel has just crossed the Jordan. God has held back the floodwaters of the Jordan. They walk over on dry ground, and they're instructed by God to pick up 12 huge boulders out of the middle of this, of this dry riverbed with the water backing up all over them, and they're to set them on the other side. They're to build a monument so that when the kids one day say, what are all these here? Because they ordinarily wouldn't be all stacked up. Who did that? Why did they do that? That they could tell their children this. Let me tell you what God did. On such and such day, it was flood flooding everywhere, and God stopped this river so we could walk on dry ground across, to the, across into the promised land, into the land that God promised us. They built monuments to encourage their children and to trust in God in the next generation. So let me just ask you a question. I want to do this gently. We have teenagers. We know the mistakes we've made or making and will make. But what are the stones you're piling up? What are you declaring to your children? If we have a critical and thankless home, we are certain to produce children who are also critical and thankless. God is worthy of our highest praise at all times. Look at verses 10 to 13. He writes, All your works shall cast praise to you, Lord, and your saints will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might in order to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your authority to rule endures throughout all generations. I have to ask a question this morning. Where are all the great kingdoms that once ruled the world? Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome. They've all come to an end. Some of these countries still exist, but they don't rule the world. God raises up kings and kingdoms for his purposes. They rise, they fall. All kings, all world leaders, are all, even in America, I think y'all already know that, are often or at the, le- at the very least sometimes arbitrary and selfish in their rule. Who would agree with that? But that's not what we find here in the text. We find that our great God is a good king. And his kingdom is like none other. These verses speak of a glorious kingdom, an unending kingdom. And these superlative statements that the psalmist makes begs the question, so what should you expect from your king? What should we expect from our king, the God who lavishes his kindness and his love on us? The text speaks of casting praise, blessing, speaking, making known. What will all the talk be about? How is God's victorious might demonstrated? And David fills that out for us in one way here in verses 14 to 16. Look what he writes. Why would people cast praise, blessing, speaking, making known to their children? Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who fall. This is the king, by the way. This is the king of the world. This is where deists get it wrong. They would say, he's not concerned with this. The word of God says differently. Look what it says. The Lord upholds 
all that are falling. He raises up all those that are bowed down. The eyes of all to you look expectantly for you give them their food at the right time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is worthy to make much of because he upholds the fallen one. The original understanding of the, of the fallen are those who through circumstances either of their own, maybe they cause it, maybe they're a victim. It's a violent, accidental circumstances usually indicated it. Damage, death, destruction is associated with this word. These are the people who are in a pitiful state. Something has happened to them. They've either brought it on themselves or they didn't see it coming. It's important for us to realize God often, very rarely, ever tells us why things happen. That's our big question, isn't it? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? We've already established that God's ways or above our understanding. But what God tells us here is that we can have all certainty that God is compassionate. He is near to us. He is watching. And he always responds in love to uphold us. The word upholds means to, to take hold of, to bear up, to sustain. It, it's used in the Old Testament in its primary way, meaning to lay hands on. The best known use of that is in the Levitical regulations regarding the sacrificial offerings. The offerer brought his sacrifice, the right one, to the altar or to the priest, and they would lay their hand upon that animal and what that, or on the head of that animal. And what that did is it expressed their identification with that offering. And also that they, in surrendering this animal, are surrendered to God. I find extreme comfort in the use of this word because when God lays his hands upon us to uphold us, he identifies with us. He's not sacrificing us. This is the term God's chosen to use. He puts his hands on us to uphold us because he identifies with us. Psalm 103 says he remembers that we are but dust. We, in order to be upheld, surrender to his loving hands. We recognize his nearness to us. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 10. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them me is greater than all. No one, no one, no one, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Paul would write, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Height nor depth nor any other created thing sometimes can separate or will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. <clears throat> sometimes our circumstances are so dire that we're unable to even stand how necessary it is for our loving God and King to reach out his arms and just place his hands on us. Eki and I had one of our brothers. You all may have heard about this. I don't know. The Shepherds Conference started last week. Daniel came in from Spain. And while he was there, his wife got sick and passed away within 24 hours. This was a beautiful family. 
This was a man who loved the Lord. He's a missionary. He's in the ministry. He has fallen. And God is upholding him. So whether you're bowed down with your circumstances, humiliation, depression, shame, or you've already fallen, the Lord's loving and kind towards you, even upholding you now, whether you feel it or not. That's why David wrote these words. That's why God has revealed them in his word. He wants us to know this. Sometimes our feelings betray us. God is upholding us. Think about all the times that God has been right on time. Right on time. Those who know God, truly know him, wait in certain expectation. For God's always been faithful, hadn't he? Is there anyone who would stand up and say, man, I wasted my time with the Lord on this one. He's never been good to me. He's never been faithful to me. He's not who he claims to be. I don't think that would ever. There's no way that could be the testimony of God's people. In fact, it certainly wasn't David's. David's experience was that I was once young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for food. Think about all the times God's been right on time. Anyone ever watch the birds? Anybody besides me? We think about it because it was a theme at Vacation Bible School one year. Who feeds the birds? Now you would think that's rudimentary, but to little children, it's a great object lesson. And Jesus didn't give that just to kids. He gave that to us. Who's feeding the birds? Jesus writes, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away. They don't put in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Did you hear that? God himself feeds them. He takes it upon himself to make sure they get their food. I, I just did a little quick search on the internet. I want to know if anyone had ever actually tried to number the birds. Two scientists 10 years ago came up with a number, 200 to 400 billion individual food or individual birds. I don't know about y'all, but that's a lot of food. How do you feed 200 to 400 billion birds? That's a lot of food every day. How much more to those who cooperate with God's program of work? Jesus would say, so don't worry, saying, what are we going to eat, drink, or wear? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. If he'll provide for the birds, 200, 400 billion of them, he'll provide for us. That is your testimony. He truly opens his hand in a satisfying way. Verse 17. We've seen that in verse 3, the Lord is great. Just beyond our comprehension. In verse 8, the Lord is gracious. He's full of compassion. In 14, the Lord upholds all who fall. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all, loving in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will hear the cry for help and deliver them. 
the Lord is righteous. Simply put, everything the Lord does is right. We may not like it. It may feel like a coat made out of sackcloth. It may be uncomfortable. It may be painful. But everything that the Lord does is right. His purposes prevail no matter what. At verse 18 and 19, though, we see something that informs us that the precepts that are being laid out in this psalm cannot be claimed or applied to every individual in the world. God qualifies this. Only those who call upon him in truth. Have you come to God in truth? Jesus has said he has claimed He claimed rightly that he is the way, the truth, and the only way to God. Have you embraced Jesus Christ? Only those who come, he hears, he is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Is your hope in anything less than what Christ has procured for you at Calvary? Look at 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Do you take God seriously? Do you tremble at his word? Isaiah 66 says, this is the man that I will live with. One who is a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. He's not asking for perfection here, people. He knows how we are. He knows we're sinners. He's asking, do we tremble at his word? Do we take him seriously? If you can answer yes to these two caveats, then you have great comfort in the nearness of God. This nearness means at hand in time, place, and kinship. That's why the Apostle Paul would write in Philippians 4, verses 5. Now, this comes at the end of verse 5. For some reason, we just start the next, our understanding of the text at verse 6, where we said, be anxious for nothing, but in fear, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But the phrase right before that in verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. He's near. So if the Lord's at hand, why be anxious for anything? Cry out to the Lord. Call out to the Lord. And he will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. God hears the cry of those who fear him. That's what the text says. The Lord is near to all who cry to him. He hears the cry of those who fear them. This word for cry is not just a little whimper. It is a scream. It's a scream. You ever had your children fall down and break a leg or an arm? They scream. This is a desperate, sudden plea. It's used to describe the cry of anguish, the cry of the oppressed, the cry of those who are approaching the breaking point. He hears the cry of those who fear him. The Lord is righteous in all he does. Look at verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I'm so glad 
that I rest safely in the Lord's hands. I mean, his power to keep me, the conclusion of Jude says now in the book of Jude, this is where Jude concludes after he's told him to contend for the faith as if, and if he didn't have this last part here, you would think, gosh, if I'm going to fall away. But this is what Jude says. He says, now unto him who is able to keep you and to present you faultless with great joy before the glory of his presence. He keeps us. I know the fights and the struggles we have with sin. And oftentimes it feels like God is so distant. And at times there have been because of my sin, I've even wondered, am I really his? How, what will keep me from becoming apostate? Well, if you belong to God, it's because he set his love on you. He chose you. He drew you to himself. He forgave you. He saves you. And as the text says, he preserves all who love him. Our love isn't perfect. But he knows whether we fear him. He knows our heart for him. He knows if we take him serious. But he doesn't end there. Look at the rest of the text. But all the wicked he will destroy. Could there be a more pithy statement? God doesn't mix his words here. There's no ambiguity. God will destroy the wicked. All the wicked he will destroy. Wicked denotes the kind of life that's opposite to God's character. The wicked are those who do not love God. They don't take him serious. The measure of wicked is its contrast with the character and attitude of God. We've seen God's character and attitude. The wicked aren't like that. They're not characterized by that. They can't live that way. The good news, however, that this is not unchangeable. God's word says he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but that they would repent and return. What does God take pleasure in? In their repentance, never their destruction. But the Lord is righteous and it says he will destroy the wicked. It's not unchangeable. And here lies the condemnation if God or if one rejects God's only solution to the sin problem. If you reject God's solution to your sin problem, you're in trouble. Christ has offered one single sacrifice for sin. And through that one sacrifice, a man can be forgiven and justified before God. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've heard the gospel message over and over and over. I want to tell you, there is a danger to coming to church, hearing the word of God preached, and yet having no fear of God in your hearts. There's a warning given to us in um, the book of Hebrews. It says this. If a person could be put to death under the law of Moses by the testimony of two or three men, of how much more severe punishment do you suppose he will be thought worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and considered the blood of the covenant, the blood Christ shed, as no big deal and does despite to the spirit of grace? The writer concludes it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know him? I beg you this morning, 
If you've heard his voice, I beg you to come to Christ for salvation today. You know that your character is nothing like God's. You can be forgiven today. Today could be the day of your salvation and you will be brought into the kingdom of God with all the superlative benefits we've read about this morning. He will lavishly bestow on you his love because he's a really good king, the best of kings. As for me, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And as for you, all flesh, yourself included, if you know Christ, shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Let us pray.